A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. A Crocodile by Thomas Lovell Beddoes Hard by the lilied Nile I saw a duskish river dragon stretched along, the brown herbergeon of his limbs enamelled with sanguine almondines and rainy pearl. And on his back there lay a young one sleeping, no bigger than a mouse, with eyes like beads, and a small fragment of its speckled egg remaining on its harmless, pulpy snout. A thing to laugh at as it gaped to catch the balking merry flies. In the iron jaws of the great devil beast, like a pale soul fluttering in rocky hell, lightsomely flew a snowy troculus with roseate beak, tearing the hairy leeches from his throat. Back in episode 61, we looked at Herman Melville's poem, The Maldive Shark, about the biological phenomenon of symbiosis in the relationship between a shark and the pilot fish that clean its body of parasites. And today, we have another 19th century poem about another famous symbiotic relationship in nature, as described by generations of travellers, between the Nile crocodile and the troculus, the white bird with a red beak that hops into its mouth and cleans its teeth. And this is another superb poem from a minor poet. No history of poetry is ever going to put Herman Melville or Thomas Lovell Beddoes in the front rank of poets. Frankly, they'd be lucky to make the B-team. But this poem, like the Maldive shark, is an absolute delight. Who could not love Beddoes' gorgeous description of his crocodile? Hard by the lilied Nile, I saw a duskish river dragon stretched along, the brown herbergeon of his limbs enamelled with sanguine almondines and rainy pearl. Who could fail to admire Beddoe's impressive powers of observation and his magnificently ostentatious diction? 
The haberdian, the hauberk or chainmail coat of the crocodile, is enameled with sanguine almondines and rainy pearl. Apparently, almondines are a form of iron garnet of a reddish or purplish colour, sanguine, as Beddoes puts it. And my inner etymologist can't resist noting that the luxurious feel of this description is enhanced by the use of words with French origins, such as haberdian, enameled, sanguine, and almondines. And France, of course, would already have been strongly associated with the luxury industry in the 19th century when Beddoes was writing. Then he follows up these first four lines with another four, where he zooms in to the detail of a baby crocodile asleep on the parent's back. And on his back there lay a young one, sleeping, no bigger than a mouse, with eyes like beads, and a small fragment of its speckled egg remaining on its harmless, pulpy snout. This is like David Attenborough, isn't it? The knowledgeable voice directing our attention to the little detail of fragments of egg left after birth. And what delightful similes, comparing the baby croc to a mouse and saying that its eyes are like beads. Then we get that surprising adjective, pulpy, applied to the baby crocodile's snout, which the Oxford Dictionary defines as soft, fleshy, succulent. You know, it's one of those odd little details that you feel like, yeah, that's, that's somebody who has really looked at the snout of a crocodile. And that's the word that came to mind when he did it. It is a little odd that Beddoes says that the baby is asleep on his back. I don't know much about crocodiles, but I would expect it to be on the mother's back rather than the father's. So we might be tempted to wonder whether Beddoes really got close enough to the crocodile to be sure about this. Next, in the ninth line of the poem, we get the speaker's reaction to the baby croc. A thing to laugh at, as it gaped to catch the balking merry flies. Then we get the description of the trochilus, the white bird with a rosy-coloured beak, fluttering into the crocodile's jaws and removing the leeches from its mouth. In the iron jaws of the great devil beast, like a pale soul fluttering in rocky hell, lightsomely flew a snowy trochilus with roseate beak, tearing the hairy leeches from his throat. Beddoes was a medical doctor, and here he makes artful use of the Latinate vocabulary that is associated with biology in the name of the trochilus and the use of roseate to describe the colour of its beak. And I can't help noticing some parallels with Melville's Maldive shark, where he described the pilot fish venturing into the shark's mouth and finding an asylum in Jaws of the Fates. Beddoes compares his white bird darting into the jaws of the crocodile to a pale soul fluttering and flying lightsomely, even in hell. 
So in both poems, there's this contrast between the, the horrifying trap of the jaws and the little creature just darting in and out, seemingly without fear. And the final lines of the two poems also seem to echo each other. You may recall me enthusing about the wonderful lack of music in the last line of the Maldive shark. Pale ravener of horrible meat. The final line of a crocodile is every bit as ugly and unmusical. Tearing the hairy leeches from his throat. So, on a first reading, it's tempting to admire a crocodile as a brilliantly observed piece of nature poetry. But it turns out it's nothing of the kind. Because unlike Melville, who wrote about the sea from bitter first-hand experience, Beddoes is not writing from observation and memory. I can't find any evidence that he ever went to Egypt. So he probably never saw a crocodile, and he certainly never saw the trochilus tearing the hairy leeches from its throat. It looks as though Beddoes found his crocodile in the pages of the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, who in his famous history described the crocodile thus. Since he has his living in the water, he keeps his mouth all full within of leeches, and whereas all other birds and beasts fly from him, the trochilus is a creature which is at peace with him, seeing that from her he receives benefit. For the crocodile, having come out of the water to the land, and then having opened his mouth, this he is wont to do generally towards the west wind, the trochilus upon that enters into his mouth and swallows down the leeches, and he being benefited is pleased and does no harm to the trochilus. That's from Herodotus' History, Volume 2, translated by G.C. Macaulay. So, what Beddoes seems to have done is to take Herodotus' description and use it as inspiration for his poem and embellish it with lots of plausible-sounding but fictitious details. Rereading the poem, even I noticed that crocodiles' coats don't really sparkle red and white like almondines and pearls. And it's less surprising that Beddoes describes the adult as a father rather than a mother once we realise he's making things up. And you know what? There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Poets are supposed to use their imagination. It's what poetic licence is for. And Beddoes has done a brilliant job of describing his crocodile, which is fabulous in every sense. This poem reminds me of the artist Albrecht Dürer's woodcut of a rhinoceros from 1515. It's one of the most famous animal illustrations of all time, and it is gloriously inaccurate. Because, like Beddoes, Dürer had never seen the creature he depicted. His rhino was based on a written description and an amateur sketch from someone who had seen it in Portugal. So, 
the artist had to wing it a bit and made lots of anatomical mistakes. And thank goodness he did, because his rhino is one of the most charming creatures never to walk the earth. And so is Beddoe's crocodile. Who could resist that brown herbergeon of his limbs enamelled with sanguine almondines and rainy pearl, or wish it to be any more scientifically accurate? Because the fantasy is even more magnificent than the reality. And the plot thickens, because according to modern science, the troculus may well be a myth. Although the story of the crocodile patiently opening its mouth and letting the birds hop about and give its teeth a good clean has been recounted by many authors and travellers from ancient times onwards, recent scientific investigation has tended to pour cold water on the idea of a genuine cleaning symbiosis, as the scientists call it. For one thing, it's hard to identify any particular species with the troculus, although the sandpiper, the Egyptian plover and the lapwing have all been put forward as candidates. And apparently there is not sufficient evidence of birds actually cleaning the crocodile's mouths for this to be accepted as scientific fact. So we may have to consign the troculus to the same category as the Yeti, Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. Which is sad, really. I'd much rather live in a world where birds really do clean crocodiles' teeth. But the good news is, in the timeless realm of poetry, they still do. Beddoe's troculus is alive and well inside his poem, so let's have a closer look at it. So, your poetic antennae may have been twitching earlier when you heard me talking about the first four lines, then the next four, then the change of direction at line nine. That's right, this is another sonnet. What is it about sonnets that so many poets feel compelled to write them? Well, one thing is the simplicity of the basic construction. Eight lines then six. One thing followed by another. As Mimi Calvati described it back in episode three, the octave is used to set the scene. Then the sestet is like where the director yells, action, and things start to happen. Or we get one perspective on things, one line of thought, followed by another. In this case, the octave presents us with the crocodiles, laid out as if posing for their portrait. Hard by the lilied Nile, I saw a duskish river dragon stretched along, the brown herbergeon of his limbs enamelled with sanguine almondines and rainy pearl. And on his back there lay a young one, sleeping, no bigger than a mouse, with eyes like beads, and a small fragment of its speckled egg remaining on its harmless, pulpy snout. So the octave gives us the crocodile of the poem's title, or rather both of them. <laughs> if we were being pedantic, we'd point out that Beddo should really have called it two crocodiles instead of a crocodile. Anyway, then we get the response to the crocodiles, 
or rather three responses. A thing to laugh at as it gaped to catch the balking merry flies. In the iron jaws of the great devil beast, like a pale soul fluttering in rocky hell, lightsomely flew a snowy troculus with roseate beak tearing the hairy leeches from his throat. The first response is the laughter prompted in the speaker by the little crocodile trying to catch the flies. The second response is that of the balking merry flies. Isn't that a great combination of adjectives? They are balking, stopping short of or swerving away from the crocodiles as they merrily fly around them. And the third response is that of the troculus, which neither laughs nor balks, but flies straight into the iron jaws of the great devil beast, like a soul fluttering about in hell, and then, like a dentist getting down to business, starts tearing the hairy leeches from his throat. So, contrast, as usual, is at the heart of the sonnet, and here, Beddoes uses it skillfully to distinguish the crocodiles from the rest of us, the humans, insects and birds who have to reckon with their presence and with their teeth. If you recall the episode about the Maldive shark, we saw how Melville used diction and rhythm to contrast the phlegmatical shark with the sleek little pilotfish. Here, Beddoes achieves a similar effect by using the sonnet's division into two parts to contrast the different species. However, a crocodile is a bit of an odd sonnet. Conventionally enough, it's written in iambic pentameter, although the metre is a little rough and ready in places, starting with the first line, which is missing a foot, so it's a tetrameter. It only has 40 tums instead of the pentameter's five. And to get the third line to scan, I had to use the slightly less common pronunciation, habergen, instead of habergen. But the most remarkable thing about the sonnet is that it doesn't rhyme. It's a blank verse sonnet. So you may remember the mini-series I did on the podcast last year about the development of blank verse, unrhymed iambic pentameter, from the drama of Marlowe and Shakespeare to the narrative verse of Milton and Wordsworth. And I pointed out that blank verse is really great for dramatic expression or telling a long story. But I didn't mention the sonnet, because until quite recently, unrhymed sonnets were almost as rare as crocodiles' tears. Rhyme is one of the first things we think about when it comes to the definition of the sonnet. Different types of sonnet are associated very closely with different types of rhyme scheme. But Beddoes doesn't use rhyme at all. His sonnet is like the cat that walked by itself. And it does so in a plodding, prosaic, unmusical manner that is very much in keeping with the plodding crocodile and the hairy leeches in its throat. 
Like Melville, Beddoes seems to be relishing the monstrous side of his subject and doing his best to evoke it in language that is at once gorgeous and ghastly. Florid Gothic, as Beddoes once described his own writing. Sadly, Beddoes also walked by himself for much of his life and often found himself in the slough of despond. He studied medicine in the hope of finding evidence of an immortal soul and was disappointed in his quest. He also spent many years working on a verse drama, Death's Jest book, but never managed to have it staged or published. It's generally considered an artistic failure. Eventually, he gave in to despair and committed suicide in 1849 at the age of 45. Part of Beddoes' tragedy is that he seems to have been oblivious to his genuine achievements as a poet. Several aspects of his poetry, such as the lack of rhyme in this sonnet, anticipate trends that would become more mainstream in 20th century poetry. And he has occasionally prompted admiration and even imitation in more distinguished poets, such as T.S. Eliot, who borrowed the phrase lipless grin from Beddoes and used it for a famous line in his poem, Whispers of Immortality. Just as Beddoes lived much of his life at the margins of polite and literary society, so his posthumous reputation has hovered at the edge of obscurity. The scholar Christopher Ricks described him as always hanging by his fingernails above literary history's oubliette. The word oubliette is an archaic term for a dungeon of the kind that prisoners were said to be dropped into and left to starve to death. Oubliette is, of course, from the French verb oublier, to forget, so it feels a particularly appropriate term to apply to the fate of this obscure practitioner of the florid Gothic. But on the basis of A Crocodile and several other poems and passages from his verse drama, I think we should reach down a friendly hand, pull Beddoes up from the mouth of the oubliette, and invite him to come and join the party. So maybe we can offer him a seat, pour him a drink, and ask him to recite A Crocodile one more time. A Crocodile by Thomas Lovell Beddoes Hard by the lilied Nile I saw a duskish river dragon stretched along, the brown herbergeon of his limbs enamelled with sanguine almondines and rainy pearl. And on his back there lay a young one sleeping, no bigger than a mouse, with eyes like beads, and a small fragment of its speckled egg remaining on its harmless, pulpy snout. A thing to laugh at as it gaped to catch the balking merry flies. 
in the iron jaws of the great devil beast, like a pale soul fluttering in rocky hell, lightsomely flew a snowy troculus with roseate beak, tearing the hairy leeches from his throat. Thomas Lovell Beddoes was an English poet, playwright, and doctor who was born in 1803 and died in 1849. Born into a literary family, Beddoes displayed a remarkable talent for poetry at an early age. His most ambitious work, the play Death's Jest Book, explored themes of mortality and the afterlife, reflecting his obsession with death. Although his career was brief, his style left significant traces in English literature, in the work of other writers, including Algernon Charles Swinburne and T.S. Eliot. Sadly, Beddoe's life was marked by personal struggles, and he committed suicide at the age of 45, leaving behind a body of work that continues to captivate those with a taste for the eerie and the melancholic. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. A new episode is released every month. If you enjoy the show and you would like to help me connect more poets with listeners and readers, you can contribute to the show's production costs at amouthfulofair.fm slash support. You can also support our poets and publishers as well as the podcast by buying their books in the A Mouthful of Air bookshop at amouthfulofair.fm slash bookshop. And if you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative, with music by Javier Whaler, sound production by Breaking Waves, and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem. <laughs>